First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcast. Now part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. Tommy, what do we got today? Well, today we're going to be connecting... I guess it, well, it's going to come out after the movie comes out, but we're going to be talking about Robert Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project too. Obviously, that's what he's most well known for. But we'll be looking at uh, yeah Robert J. Oppenheimer, the uh, nicknamed the father of the atomic bomb, and uh, he gets a lot of credit. He wasn't the only one, and we'll explain that as we talk. He wasn't the only one involved in making the atomic bomb, but he was definitely the um, theoretical physicist that was credited. With it, he became in what 42, 43, he became the head of the Manhattan Project. From there, he kind of became the spokesperson for atomic energy in the United States for a long time. Yeah, no, actually, there was like thousands of people by the oh, end yeah, of yeah. the project. By 45, there was close to, I think, 6,000 people that were Even involved. though they all didn't know what they were doing. That's yeah. also kind of crazy, which yeah. I'm sure the movie explains we can talk about. We talked about a little bit, I guess, when we did nuclear weapons a while back. Yeah, so. we're going to get into that today. He wasn't really the first choice. Well, for a lot, of a reasons, lot of yeah. Yeah, and there was a lot of reasons. There are a lot of question marks as to why, you know, Robert Oppenheimer, actually J. Robert Oppenheimer, he's one of those people that didn't really like going by his first name, was Julius Robert Oppenheimer. He wasn't the first choice, and eventually he is kind of picked by Leslie Groves, who is the army engineer that's in charge of the Manhattan Project, which we'll get into as well. But let's get into J. Robert Oppenheimer, or simply Robert Oppenheimer. I learned a lot about this guy just doing this research. And first of all, very eclectic, quirky, and not always a nice guy with some shady personal life issues, but also political views, especially for the time. Um, I mean, he was, we could say flat out, right? He was a communist, which was really something that was very uncouth you might say, and and not necessarily the political leaning you might want to have in 1940s and specifically 50s. Julius Robert Oppenheimer was born in 1904. He was, as you guys kind of already know, an American theoretical physicist. They said he was terrible in a lab setting, and he he's mostly theory. Uh, when it came to practice, not all that good. Yeah, but he was but a genius, right? He was a yeah, he was definitely a genius. So he's well, obviously born a Jewish immigrants in New York City. He wound up getting his bachelor's degree in chemistry, actually in Harvard, and eventually PhD in physics. And he gets that in Germany. But he was born into a very wealthy family. His um, father worked with textiles, right? And his mother yeah, was like an artist. But to the extent that his father was actually so successful that these people lived in a, a very wealthy apartment in Manhattan in Riverside Drive. It was kind of known as like, that's where the wealthy people lived. The art collection in his house growing up, he had Pablo Picasso paintings. He had Van Gogh paintings. Like this guy grew up around money. And this was kind of self-made money. His father came as an immigrant and eventually kind of got through the textile industry and then really got wealthy during it. Robert Oppenheimer went to a prep school. So he excelled in school, right? Like he skipped, uh, he completed third and fourth grade in one year and he yep. skipped half of eighth grade. He was obviously a genius at a very young age. He understood Sanskrit. Right? Yep. He did that as, like, as like a hobby. He's like, I want to learn Sanskrit as like a hobby. 
as good yep. as he could. Well, it's interesting too, because he went to Harvard and then after that, he takes like a gap year before a gap year is really a thing, right? Did you see that? His father, because yeah. he was sick, they said that he had um, ulcerative colitis and other different inflammatory conditions. So his father thought that what's best for him is to kind of go out west and kind of relax a little bit because it was stress induced. So his father at the age of 18 sends him to New Mexico, which again, this is kind of foreshadowing later on because Oppenheimer eventually gets a ranch in Mexico, loves New Mexico, and kind of actually gears the Manhattan Project to move to New Mexico because it's also close to where he has his ranch. But Fell in love uh, with horseback riding, kind of just southwestern United States. That was his jam. After that, he feels better and he comes back and winds up majoring in chemistry. He caught up by taking all kinds of courses in his scientific studies and he like doubled up on everything in the latter years and kind of finished fairly quickly. He gets accepted to Cambridge, but he doesn't like it. So he goes to Cambridge. Uh, he goes into physics, decides to go into physics, and he is, like I mentioned before, really not that good in lab work, more theoretical guy, but he does get in an apprenticeship in a lab, but eventually he just, he doesn't like it. He, he finds it boring and it's like, this isn't really working out for me. It wasn't for him. He he wanted something more exciting. And at one point he actually kind of almost gets thrown out of there. I don't know if you saw this in Cambridge because he didn't like his lab partner. So at one point he took an apple right? Because the lab partner used to eat apples. He doused it with like chemicals and he left it on his guy's desk. And the guy never actually ate the apple, but someone found out that Oppenheimer did this. So the university authorities were all yeah, alerted by this. He's basically poisoning somebody. You can't do that. Yeah, because he didn't like him. He was like basically about to be placed on probation. So it, it really leads to him just leaving Cambridge. And he leaves Cambridge. He's not actually put on probation. He just kind of leaves. And he goes to study at um, University of Göttingen, uh, which is yeah. in uh, Germany, where he studies theoretical physics. Um, that's right. I and mean, I think that's like a good point to kind of just like segue into the scientific things that he's going to wind up doing and just a little bit about him. Because what, as this is going on, yes, he was part of high society, but what gets him in trouble, I guess, is some of his political views, right? Or not, I guess, but under surveillance from the government too, is a lot of his political views because he was a communist sympathizer. He actually gave money to a lot of communist causes. And this is why, as times are going on, his name was actually on a list that if there was ever like an uprising in the United States, he was on, his name was on there as someone that was supposed to be arrested yep. right, right away. And it becomes a bigger deal when he becomes part of the Manhattan Project because now he's getting his hands on classified information, and yet he's a communist sympathizer. And he always said, you know, I'm not a member of the Communist Party. I'm not helping the communists, you know, the Russians at this point, you know, I'm not doing anything with them. But he did have connections to the two individuals like that, which was like a big bad word back in the 1940s and 50s, communism. Yeah, you know? that's scary, yeah. He also always hooked up with women that had communist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, and he had a lot of... Um, a lot of love affairs too. I'm sure we can get yes, into that a little we'll get bit. Into that. Yeah, that was like um, he was father of more than just a bomb. We'll put it that way. Yes. Nah. Even from his college days, was a chain smoker. He would smoke four packs a day. Uh, it's very hard to find a picture of him without holding a cigarette. The guy just smoked and smoked. I mean, four packs a day. I can't even imagine. Um, well, I think it was, it was just a compulsion, and that kind of fits with a lot of his personality. Like, yeah, they said he was very depressed. If he wasn't, he was either smoking or doing some form of science, science, or he was depressed. When he went to his University of Göttingen, Germany, they said that he was very much a know-it-all and was like super enthusiastic and just discussion all the time in class. He was that kid in class that just like would call out and try to challenge the professor at all times because he was that smart. I mean, I'm sure you and I both have had students. Yeah. Got to the point that he was basically taking over classes. Um, and not only the professor was kind of taken aback by that, but that a lot of students were so 
upset by this that they actually got this petition. They got it signed by all the students in the classes, candidate to the main professor and physics professor, and basically said, we will boycott physics class unless you make Oppenheimer stay quiet. And what happened is the professor left this petition and letter on his desk while he made an appointment with Oppenheimer about something. And he never had to tell Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer just saw it. And from that point forward, he was basically quiet. But when Oppenheimer graduated with his doctor of philosophy at the age of 23, by the way, in 1927, right? He's got a PhD at 23. The professor, the main professor was just excited. He's like, thank goodness, because this guy was on the point of questioning me. Like he was going to take over. Harvard wants him to work for them, right? Yeah, he has his choice of jobs for the most part. Exactly, because he's he's, smart. Yeah, people are going to deal with his... Intricacies. Attitudes, they're going to deal with, they're going to deal with him just because of what he can accomplish. Yeah. Because of it, because of his brain. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's a theoretical physicist at a time where, you know, that field is growing. So he basically has a choice. He could go to Caltech and teach there, or he could go to Harvard and uh, they want him so bad that he actually winds up splitting the time. And he, he kind of works both at Caltech and at Harvard. So once he's at Caltech, he gets he kind of makes really good friends with another theoretical physicist and they're working together on this nature of these chemical bonds. And so Oppenheimer's doing the mathematics, Poling's doing their interpreting of the results. These guys are, think of like Big Bang Theory. These guys are going to make it somewhere that's going to be published. Problem is that Oppenheimer then kind of starts hitting on this guy's wife and starts basically like showing up at the house where when his partner's not home. So then the partner gets upset and he's like, get out. Like, I don't want to work with you anymore. So that kind of ends Oppenheimer's educational relationship at Caltech with Linus Poling. But then eventually he makes it to University of California, Berkeley, where he uh, bec- you know, becomes a professor and starts teaching. This guy's known for a lot of different things, right? Oppenheimer made important contributions to the theory of cosmic ray showers, quantum tunneling. These are things that I don't even really know. Yeah, they said he's, he could comprehend and like interpret these types of things that other people couldn't at the time. Like it yep. was, he, that's what he was able to do. And his main role that he's going to get in Manhattan project, besides being the director, is he calculated the ratios to actually create the bomb. Him and his team. He's not just one person. These are teams of people working together these complex equations, right? But he actually, they calculated the chain reaction uh, threshold required for the bomb. That they proved that this is not only possible, but like how to do it. And these are the actual ratios we need to accomplish this chain reaction to make the explosion and stuff like that. So, which I know, I mean, I have a very small understanding of, you know, how that. I know, so many words, I'm like, hmm. Just the, the fact that creation of the atomic bomb in itself, like that was out of this world at the time. Well, you know, it's theor- it was like- it's theor- and 39, it was theoretical, right? Well, there was yeah. like a, the Germans did like a chain reaction that showed it was possible. And then in 45, it's actually done. I mean, that's just yeah. how quickly they can do it if when so much time, money, and people are focused on it. Together. Remember, there was over 100,000 people involved in the Manhattan Project. I know we might be getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, yeah. but yeah. not all of them, most of them had no idea what they were doing. They were like, what are they yeah. called, moles in the dark? And this is before the US was even involved in the war. So, I mean, and it all starts with with theory. You want to get into Manhattan Project or you want to like... Yeah, let's get, and then we'll come back. All right, so let's go to Manhattan so, and we'll come back to him. So it all basically starts... Well, you want to start with it or you want me to start No, no, you go, you go, go, go. Well, it basically starts with, like you said, in 39, the uh, Germans do, do a chain reaction. It's kind of like alerts them to the scientific community. And they're getting kind of worried. One person that is kind of worried about this is Albert Einstein. Okay. Everyone yeah. knows Einstein. You've heard that name, obviously. So he actually does, him and other um, scientists send a letter to Roosevelt, right? Making him aware of the possibility of nuclear chain reactions using uranium and that this could actually lead to the formation of very powerful bombs. The main thing in this letter, he's saying, listen, I'm not saying make these bombs. 
but there's a chance that Germany is working on a nuclear bomb project. And if they get this weapon first, that's going to be a problem. And that's what really what kind of sunk in at Roosevelt. This thing can be dangerous, but if Germany gets it first, we know it's going to be dangerous. Like if yep. imagine the Nazis with nuclear weapons. Yeah. So Einstein yeah. finds out about this from his friends in Germany. Yeah. So in 1938. And they put his letter, his, his name on it because he's famous. Yep. In 1938, physicists Otto Hahn and uh, Fritz Strassmann found um, that when a neutron with enough energy strikes a fissile atom, the atom splinters into pieces, and then that releases lots of energy and a bunch more neutrons. And then the energy from a single split atom won't really cause an explosion. But if you put it together, these scientists said, um, and get lots of fissile atoms together really close and then split just one, you will have a chain reaction. The neurons would be able to find and split more fissile atoms. And this chain reaction would basically cascade into a massive burst of energy or an explosion. So and that's a very simple explanation of this. Like there's so many calculations how to get this done, but it's, this is the theoretical idea that this could happen. Yeah. And the, the good thing for us or for the rest of the world is the fact that um, while this is discovered by physicists in Germany, most of the European physicists, theoretical physicists that could potentially put this into practice, had fled Nazi regime by then in 1938. Yeah, so there's only a few German scientists that left that could really give Hitler a head start in his potential bomb. And that's kind of what is presented to Einstein, who then presents it to FDR. Like, look, they're working on it, but like we could do it here. And the U.S. government realizes like how urgent this is. So they're like, you know, we're going to do this. Now, this is before we were actually involved. This is in October when we actually yeah, get to not even at war yet. So we're not at war yet. And so it hasn't yep. at war yet. And Einstein is not part of the Manhattan Project. I'm sure he's in the movie. I believe he's in the movie a little bit. Yeah, but he refuses. He and he doesn't mean, well, he's also, he, does, he never gets a security clearance. Yeah. And um, from the Army Intelligence Office and anyone working on the Manhattan Project was not allowed to consult him on anything. Yep. So this is crazy. You have like Einstein, you know, people call people Einstein for their intelligence. And yep. like, he's a guy, you know, he definitely could help, but they're like, no, nah, he's not cleared. Not, he's not getting involved in this. No. So. By the way, it's called Manhattan Project. For those who want to know why it happened, is because the initial first offices for this top secret project were actually in Manhattan. And then eventually, the, you know, they would build factories that produced raw materials all over the country. They recruited the country's most brilliant physicists and they moved them to this planned laboratory in, to, in New Mexico. Uh, Major General Leslie Groves is in charge. He's the army guy that's put in charge. He was, he was an intense individual. Yes. Uh, and he's in charge of putting together the scientific team. He's the guy that's played by Matt Damon in the movie. Yeah. Well, he's the army general. He, he's the one. He's basically in charge. He's Oppenheimer's boss, basically. Yes. And he handpicks Oppenheimer, which is, so let's kind of go back to Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer is already a very known physicist. He is a professor at Berkeley, former professor at Caltech, at Harvard. This guy knows his stuff. And he is chosen because of all his theoretical stuff by Leslie Groves. But there's a few little hiccups here where some people are like, ah, do we really want this guy? And Leslie Groves actually comes in and says, after Oppenheimer's vetted by the FBI, an FBI comes up to Groves and says, hey, listen, like this is probably not your guy. And Groves like no one else could do this but this guy. And he picks this guy regardless of his um, questionable. Yeah, well, well, Grove basic idea was because there was other communists probably involved in this too. And he was just like, we need to, it was kind of the enemy of my enemy is my friend type of ideal yeah. too. But it's also, we need him to beat the Nazis. We'll deal with them after. He's like, I don't care what they are right now because right now the, we have to beat the Nazis. He was obsessed with, we have to get this before the Nazis do. Like yeah. that was that was really the military sphere. Because imagine if the Nazis had a nuclear weapon. So if this weapon is possible, if it does exist, we need it first. And that's what the people and they work on it. Even when the war starts, is like it's to beat 
Germany. It's you know, but even though it's never used against Germany, which we'll talk about later, but like that—that's what it was. It was the stop the Germans. That's what this was all based on. What's interesting here as well is that the one of the well, few worries, but besides the fact that he had these communist leanings and he participated and got used to subscribe to communist newspapers and gave money to communist groups in the United States, there's also one other thing is like, would he be respected by the big personalities that will be brought on onto the project? Because he never won a Nobel Peace Prize. He was up for it three times in his life, but never won it. And the Manhattan Project actually had as many as 20 future or current at the time, you've so 20 current or future Nobel Prize winners on staff. So like, would they respect him enough to do it? That was kind of the big thing. And Groves thought, though, that what really separated Oppenheimer was the fact that he wasn't just into physics. This guy read poetry. This guy taught himself how to speak uh, Hindi, right? He was into philosophy, but also chemistry was really his first science love and, and engineering. He was also excelled in engineering at his university studies. So the way that Groves looked at it is to build this bomb, we don't just need physics, we need the chemistry, we need engineering. And himself being an engineer, he's like, I, I need someone that I think could put all those pieces together. And together. Not- yeah, you gotta build it, yeah. Which is why Oppenheimer was kind of selected. And interesting, Oppenheimer kind of viewed himself like, all right, well, if I'm being recruited by the army, I need to, I need to be part of the army. And he, he basically goes for the army physical exam and he fails it. <laughs> the army finds him permanently physically incapitated. Um, and the reason for that is because terrible weight. He was underweight. He was like 128 Very pounds strong, yeah. because he smoked four packs a day. He had a chronic cough. Again, doesn't help with the smoking. He had to sign a waiver to begin his post working technically for the army because of the fact that he was and looked so unhealthy. Yeah, so Manhattan Project is coming together, right? And it's, you know, at its height, it's going to cost $2 billion back in 1939 money. That's about $24 billion today. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of that was in like getting the fissile materials and stuff like that, actually build everything. It took place on more than 30 sites. So it wasn't just one. Los Alamos was the most famous site. And that's the site of Trinity, which we'll get to. But um, it took place on over 30 sites across the United States, the um, England, United Kingdom and Canada. So this was like a multi thing. It wasn't just one spot, one place, you know? Yep. I was just in Utah. What was cool was that one of our tour guides was explaining why there were so many off-road trails in Utah. The reason for it is he said because of uranium. So the U.S. Army actually came in to like the, you know, the desert, rock deserts of Utah and started creating roads. So that way people could come out and to look and to mine for uranium. So to make it easier for companies to mine, they just build these dirt roads. The idea is that we had uranium. It was here in the United States. We just had to find it. And and refine it, make it weapons grade. That's part of it too. Exactly. And then you had to turn it into plutonium. I mean, think about it. Making 14, it was like 14 pounds of plutonium that was required for an atomic bomb. Like I think of holding a pound or 15 pound dumbbell, like 14 pounds is not a lot, but that's, that's what you needed to start an atomic bomb. Just 14 pounds of plutonium, which is made from uranium. Um, Getting it is a whole other issue. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. Um, Don't go Googling trying to get plutonium, people. No, no, no. The CIA will be at your house. Yes. So it was right. It was about a baseball size, like a softball size chunk of plutonium that they eventually wound up getting. And now once they did it, they had to figure out how to like compress this ball to half its size so that way the chain reaction could proceed because the atoms needed to be even closer. So they wind up taking this and surrounding with these shaped pieces of TNT, which is what you see this bomb initially. Uh, so that way it all explodes together in a right way that forces the explosion ball inward on itself. I mean, again. Well, they're using, well they, what they're doing too is they're making two bombs at the same time. 
Yes. Right? They're making a plutonium and a uranium type bomb. The one is a, a fission weapon and one is an implosion type nuclear weapon. So they're working on these at the same time using uranium and plutonium. One is going to be used on Hiroshima. That's the uranium one. And then plutonium is going to be the one that's used on Nagasaki. And uh, so they're just experimenting to kind of see, you know, the different ways that you can actually make these. Both are totally obsolete by today's standards. Too, oh, yes. By the way. It was known as Thin Man, not yeah. um, Little Boy. Thin Man and Fat Man. And those two bombs were supposed to represent Thin Man was FDR and Fat Man was uh, Churchill. And eventually what happened is they wound up changing Thin Man um, because they thought it would be a, a little too obvious. And also they thought that maybe it would not necessarily be politically correct to name it after there's just two men. So they wound up switching it to Little Boy and um, and Fat Man. As you mentioned before, right, the lab in Los Alamos in New Mexico, it, basically like a summer camp for physicists. And this yeah, I'm sure I mean, they got everything they needed, whatever was needed. Yeah. They was there. And because a lot of them, they like refused to leave their family. They're like, well, I'm not. I can't work on this project. You're not going to tell me what it is. And I'm not leaving my family. They're like, no, you're going to bring yep. your family with you. Yeah. So that's what it was. And Oppenheimer actually had a, had a, well, I think his one daughter was born while he was in Los Alamos, New Mexico. Didn't she eventually commit suicide? I think she eventually. No, that was his, no, um, that was his um, mistress. Is that what it was? Committed okay. suicide in 44. Committed yep. suicide in 44, yeah. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Um, all right. So this it's a tiny town, New Mexico. Uh, it's actually near Oppenheimer's summer ranch. And they turned this... Uh, desert area into this massive laboratory little town and it was a very six days a week right crazy work day with crazy hours but on the seventh day it was like one massive party and Oppenheimer is apparently known for famous martinis I remember reading that yeah right like he would just throw these parties at once a week at like his mansion not mansion because they were all like it was like residence residence there was also a bachelor's dorm that apparently was like the crazy party dorm uh, in Los Alamos, um, the bachelors, there was evidence of them taking pure laboratory alcohol, which they would then mix with pineapple juice and they would pour that over dry ice. Um, it, apparently, it just like knocked people out. There were some just crazy parties every single weekend. And again, the point is you put it in the desert because you want to make sure no one else knows this is happening. I mean, uh, it's kind of common knowledge that President Truman, when he was still vice president, he had no idea this was happening. He didn't know we were creating a bomb until no, the he, bomb wasn't, he wasn't told after FDR yeah. died. Yeah. Yeah. Like, here you go. It was almost done. It. it was almost done. Yeah. At that point, they told him about it. Like, Stalin um, probably knew more about it than Truman did at that time. Rightfully so. We're trying to keep this away from people and not let this out. But really, we're trying to keep this even from the Soviets, even though yeah, they, they, are they knew, they knew about it. Of course, I knew about it, right? But there was evidence that Oppenheimer was also approached to give information to Soviets, and he stayed an ardent patriot. He refused. Yes, he had communist ba- you know, backing or rather past, but while he was working on Manhattan Project, he was approached numerous times through various different people, Channels, and he always yeah. refused. Because people are like, you know, should we even be making this thing? Like, if we succeed, this is scary, what it can do. And they was like, well, I don't know if we can be trusted with this, but I know that, like, the Nazis definitely can't. Like that was, that was kind of his mindset. 
Wesley Grohl's mindset is that it's dangerous, it's powerful. That's why we need it and we can't let the Nazis have it. So that, that's just something to keep in mind, like why are they doing all this? Because also people died during this. So a lot of people got exposed to radiation, right? Yeah. It was called like the drag, the slow moving dragon's tail or something like that, because you wouldn't even know then you were slowly get sicker and sicker and you would start your, get like the radiation poisoning on their skin. A lot of people were dying from getting this exposure to radiation. Which is shocking that Oppenheimer dies from throat cancer then, not from... Well, four packs a day. Well, cigarettes, which makes sense, but more the radiation he was around, you know? Yeah. Leslie Groves actually had a conversation in Los Alamos in 1944, where he flat out stated that the primary reason to deploy the atomic bomb was to use it to subdue the Soviets. Oh, yeah. That's what he was... Yeah, in the future. This was more going to be... He's like, yeah, we're, we're, we're doing to send the war... But we're really doing this to kind of sub. It's to show them, look what we have, and you don't mess with us because we have this. That was the whole idea. And the Soviets were aware that's what they were doing. That's why they were making sure they got the information. And by what, 49, they have their own. So it wasn't really, you know, the, monop- the monopoly didn't last that long. So basically what ends up happening is the physicists are successful, obviously. We know yeah, that. So the tr- tr- Trinity is the first test, right? It's, uh, anniversary just took place on the 16th. There was technically three bombs that were produced that were ready to go. And we kind of made Japan believe that we had a lot more. We did it. We only really had the three. One was the Trinity, which is the test. Then you which had... was never, it could never be dropped from a plane. No. Well, did you see that? I, I actually read this, that initially Oppenheimer wanted to put this into a, a gun. He wanted to create some form of a, like a missile like gun. A projectile, yeah. A projectile yeah, that would like fire more. an atomic um, weapon. And then... Once he was doing that, he realized it was too unstable in, to put it into something that would fire it, which yeah, is why it was it switched and made into a bomb. Because initially, they, they were sitting there in the Manhattan Project, and they're like, all right, like, can we well, shoot do, out of a cannon? They do, they do eventually make uh, atomic water shells in like the 50s and 60s, I remember. Yeah. Atomic yeah but they wanted to shoot this out of like a cannon. Like, that's kind of well, crazy. Well, they do it eventually. Well, they have that eventually. Nuts. I think that's nuts. And eventually, you know, he goes like, well, at this point, let's just let's look implosion type. It's going to be a little better. So the gun design is abandoned in July of 1944. Well, yeah, it's supposed to be a gun type weapon. Trinity, um, as you mentioned, July, uh, July 16, 1945, world's first ever nuclear explosion. There's, and a, there's a spot there, right? I think it's like marked with like uh, melted. Probably some kind of like a plaque well, or something. Yeah, it turned um, like a bunch of sand into glass. And stuff like, you know, because of just the intense heat and everything that was going on. So, but yeah, and so it was successful. And I was like, all right, like now what? I know there's that famous saying that uh, Oppenheimer says, now we, right now I've become death and destroyer of worlds. And this is where it gets interesting because obviously they're sitting there in a room while this is exploding. I also, we should mention before, Oppenheimer's brother, his brother's also a physicist and a scientist, and his brother's present during the very first explosion. And later on, as years progress, People are like, what was actually said first? Yeah. So Oppenheimer even changed it a couple of times. The first time he he quoted a verse and he said, in the radiance of a thousand suns were to burst at once into the sky, that would be like the splendor of the mighty one. And then later on, he says, no, what I said was I'm become death, the destroyer of worlds, which is probably the most famous thing that's yeah. supposed to be said. But they asked his brother. Frank, what were Robert's first words after the test had been successful? Because Frank was standing next to him. And Frank said that his, um, he said, I guess it worked. And then he probably said, I have become the blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? But the probably first one was, I guess it worked. And they said that Oppenheimer was ecstatic. Like they said he, he oh. was so 
triumphant. Like he walked out of there like, that's it. I've done it. You know? Well, think of how like much work they've done on this, how much energy they've put on this, how much everything that they've doing for this. And now that it's successful, it works. Yeah. Think there was a real thought that it might not work at all. Like it would just be a dud. And then what if it didn't work? What, what they, how are you going to justify spending all this money, all this time for a weapon that didn't work? And you have to remember, this was in July of 45, right? The war in Europe, for the most part, is over. Well, it is over, yep. right? Germany's already surrendered at this point. Yep. So a lot of them are saying they would thought they would just be shut down. Because they're like, well, there's no way Japan's not making one of these bombs. And, you know, we need yeah. that. They, when Japan actually was working on something similar, so he was like, why are we even doing this anymore? And yeah, he did have a regret that it wasn't used against Nazi Germany. He was, that was something he really talks about. Like, I wish, you know, not that he wishes it was used, but like it wasn't ready in time to be For used against Germany. Yeah. For Germany. Um, and obviously we all know once the bombs are dropped on Hiroshima and then Nagasaki, a lot of the people that worked on this program, Oppenheimer included, once it was dropped on Hiroshima, they got it. But Nagasaki, that's when they turned against it. And they're like, oh, yeah. wait a second. Uh, Hiroshima one, they kind of understood. Because there was yeah. some military things there. Um, and they saw the, the destructiveness of it, too. Yeah. He, I, I think once they saw how destructive it was, too, he said, you know, he just wasn't happy with that. Like He was like, All right. they knew it was going to be like that. But it's one thing, like, theoretically, knowing one thing, I guess, and actually seeing it. And even like now in the history books, like, we can see the pictures. We can do the research on what happened to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it's hopefully something that will never be seen again, right? Yeah. Because if just it, like just doing research on it, seeing those pictures, it's nothing. You can try to put yourself there, but it, it's impossible. But Nagasaki too, and Nagasaki also, if you do research, it wasn't even, that was like the eighth target that day. It was like yeah. bad weather. There were so many other places they were going to drop that bomb that they just had to find a place to drop it. Otherwise, they were going to run out of fuel. Yeah. So it was like, all right, we'll just drop it here. It didn't burst like exactly when it was supposed to. So it didn't cause, it caused a lot of damage, obviously, but you know, they didn't have the destructive power of the first one, not because it wasn't as powerful, just because I, I think it didn't um, burst as high as they wanted it to do. So because they had the plane had to get away because it wasn't the original target. Yep. So there's a whole bunch of other, it's really fascinating. Maybe we should do one day just, just not actually, I, don't to, I don't want to do that much research. I don't, I don't want, I mean, I do, but like the nightmare, yeah, I don't know. Not yeah. the nightmares, but it's, just, it's just very humble. It's just very dark, put it that way. Yeah. And it's, it's, that's not the point of what we're going into. But yeah, you're right, Pete. Oppenheimer and a lot of the other people in the Manhattan Projects you know, wrote letters saying why. They said there's no reason to drop the second one. First yep. one, fine. The second one, yep. there's no reason to be. We weren't even giving Japan enough time. They felt like to, to surrender or whatever you want to say yep. after that. So, And uh, afterwards, so in October of 45, the war's over for a month now. Um, or at least uh, Japan had officially surrendered. Oppenheimer asks to be granted an interview with President Harry S. Truman. Yeah. Did not go well. <laughs> did not go well at all because by then Oppenheimer comes in and, and Truman's like, all right, this is the guy who gave me the bomb, blah, blah, blah. But Oppenheimer was depressed. And when he came in, he was like, he basically, and this is quoted often, he told the president, like, I feel like I have blood on my hands for, for what I've done and what we've done. And and Truman flipped out. He, because says, he, he ends the meeting, he says, get out. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's, like, he's the one that really made the decision. So Truman's yeah, like, done. get out. You're right. Like, just, and what did he say? He said, I don't want to see that SOB in this office ever again. Yep. Now, to be fair, he does a year later get award um, Oppenheimer the Medal for Merit. So 1946. Yeah. So he does kind of get over it. But Truman's like, you know, I'm the one that's going to be bearing this. I'm the one that's going to be, you're just the one who created it. I'm the one that gave the order. You yeah. Know? Then you go to like the guy who actually flew, you know, the guy who dropped it. He yeah. was like, I don't say loved it, but he was like a, like the celebrity. He understood it. Like that guy, very proud of their accomplishment. He was actually on 
this was years later. I know I'm getting off the subway, but I remember seeing this. There was used to be this show called like, this is your life or something like that. Right. When they were like, and this was like the fifties and they actually had a um, man who survived the Hiroshima bombing. Right. His family was all killed and they had him on this like the 56. You're talking about Paul Tibbetts, right? Paul Tibbetts. Paul Tibbetts. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Paul Tibbetts. And then he actually met Paul Tibbetts. Like they brought him out. Oh, you were in Hiroshima. Here's a guy who dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. And it is one of the most like awkward. It's on YouTube, but you can see it. It's one of the most awkward moments. Wow. Yeah. You know, like being you know? the guy who, and they're like shaking hands and stuff like that. So later on, the guy actually, the Japanese um, gentleman does say, you know, it was kind of like therapeutic. You know what I mean? Yeah. But you think at the time, it was, it's just very awkward. I, I would think, right? Like how do you, um, I mean, yeah, I don't know. It was just one of those things. Anyway. Getting back anyway, to the Oppenheimer and Manhattan Project. So Manhattan Project is successful. We know about the atomic bombs. And afterwards, doing... obviously, like this whole thing comes out, right? We yeah, it comes out. No one knew about it. They just heard out that it was these weapons of a mass of mass power, right? New yeah. weapons that were used against Japan. I remember that too because my grandfather was in the Navy. He was actually on his way to Japan. And he, they were the first um, Navy personnel to be in Japan after the war ended. He was, he was part of the occupation for – he was there for a, while, a couple of years after the war. And they drove him – through Japan, and he has he brought pictures about not from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He was driven through them. They weren't allowed to take pictures. Yeah, but he just from the firebombing. He he had pictures. I have them somewhere of um like Kobe, Japan, which was just bombed out. And this is just normal bombs. So I remember yeah. seeing this. You know, when I was a kid, and he would be like, "These are normal bombs," and the atomic bomb was like beyond this. Yeah. You know? Once this whole thing is obviously exposed, the world yeah, knows. Yeah, yeah. Oppenheimer becomes a known person. Prior to this, he's not a, he's a known physicist. He's known around studious scientific circles, but he's not a public figure. But now he becomes a public figure. Oppenheimer, Manhattan Project starts being thrown around like that was really a thing. Who is this Oppenheimer? He makes some uh, cover of Time Magazine. Life he becomes magazine. the face of it. He becomes the face. He becomes famous. Yep. And oh, at the same time, he also becomes the guy that spearheads the pushback of using atomic weapons, which is why you start having, um, you know, we're going right into the cold war here and we're going against the Soviets and their arms race is picking up. And here is the guy that's the face of the atomic weapon. And he speaks out against it. The effect of like, what is this going to do in world powers? Then that's when you start getting the other view of Oppenheimer. That's when you start getting some more of his intricacies and you're starting to see this in the press and people are looking at like, you know, he's not the nicest dude. Like he goes from this eccentric, weird guy, which makes him become the guy in the Manhattan Project, which makes him a national hero, which then he shuns, which makes people again look at some of his interesting life choices. First of all, he got he got involved with this one woman, right? She's the daughter of a Berkeley literature professor in 1936, before the war starts. Um, she writes for a communist paper. He's very pro-communist, in love with this girl. She breaks up with him. Then he meets Kitty, that's the girl's name, who becomes his wife. Another radical Berkeley student, former communist member, winds up marrying him. But Kitty has like four different marriages. Uh, what's his name? It's her fourth, fourth marriage. Husband, yeah. um, they wind up having a first child, Peter, as you said, in 1941. Second child, Tony, uh, is born in Lo yeah, Los Alamos, New Mexico, on December 7th, 1944. But at the same time, Oppenheimer then goes back to his initial, an original girlfriend, the daughter of the Berkeley literature professor, and starts hooking up with her. So he's basically has her as like a side woman while he's married to Kitty, who's with him at Los Alamos. So again, yeah, he was always in constant affairs, and that's why the one eventually, I think she commit what she does, she commits suicide yeah. in '44 after the 
um, wife is pregnant again. And she's like, you know, you're never going to leave her. You know, it was, it was a very complicated man, obviously, with his relationships. Yep. Gets into the Atomic Energy Commission mm-hmm. and where he tries to slow down the production of atomic weapons. And he was very much against the creation of the hydrogen bomb. Yeah, and there's the- no reason to do that. Like, now you're just supercharging it. Like, what, what's the point? Yeah. And he said the hydrogen bomb, well, I mean, the hydrogen bomb was really created because the Russians imploded their own atomic bomb in 49. Yeah, we, need we need something bigger, yeah. Something bigger. And Oppenheimer is flat out against it. He's like, we should not be doing this. You went on the radio, went on TV, blah, blah, blah. And that's when the federal government's like, all right, shut this guy up. Like, we need this guy to be a cheerleader for our fight yeah. against the Russians and the arms race. Shut this guy up. And that's when you have... The FBI is like, well, we've actually been surveilling this guy when he was still a professor, and he's got all these communist things. And yeah, this so is they, all- start to, they start to leak that stuff, stuff about his affairs that he's yeah. having. So they, they're going to leak that stuff and kind of try to discredit him as much as possible. Like we said before, he's the face of a t- of nuclear weapons in the United States. He's this war hero, basically, right? The guy yeah. who made the bomb. And now he's saying, yeah, we shouldn't be making any more. What ultimately happens is he, there's a security hearing. He's put on trial. He loses all of his security clearance. Clearance, yeah. A lot of his um, rank and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, the House of Un-American Committee says that basically his affiliation with the Communist Party in the 1930s through his different girlfriends and wives. And even his wife actually wound up saying that at one point they were members of the Communist Party, that his brother was a member of the Communist Party. They basically used that as like, all right, boom. And his, his brother winds up being fired as well from University of Minnesota because during this trial, it comes out that he was also part of the Communist Party. So Frank Oppenheimer, the brother, winds up becoming a cattle rancher. And then he says, ah, yeah, I kind of still like physics. So he starts teaching high school physics. So a shout out to our high school physics teacher. There you go. Yeah, just because he enjoys you it. Know. Yeah. So what winds up happening is Oppenheimer is kind of stripped of his thing. But he does name some people during these hearings. And some people kind of think later on that like it was kind of uncool that he dropped some names of who was involved with the Communist Party and whatnot. In 2022, you saw that, right? The U.S. Secretary of Energy went back and they revoked the 1954 decision that stripped his security clearance. They, they said that... Yeah, they do a lot of these, like, yeah, post the yeah. symbolism things, yeah. Yeah, they said, they said that the 54 Atomic Energy Commission that revoked his security clearance um, was a flawed process that violated the commission's own regulations, that it was basically a witch hunt against him because he was opposing further nuclear weapons or atomic weapons. He leaves, right? He leaves the Los Alamos. Yeah, he winds up actually um, taking a job at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey. He winds up working there for a while. He does a series of conferences from 1947 to 49. He didn't want to get into teaching. He's just basically having these. He's still doing his work, but he didn't feel like teaching anymore. So he's just doing research. He's running laboratories and stuff like that. Um, He's getting, you know, paid well and he can still be part of that intellectual community. He becomes a member of the board um, in the Atomic Energy Commission. Later yeah. on. Yeah. So so he's getting involved, but also because he's part of this stuff, this is when he's also, this is all in the mid-1940s, late-1940s. I mean, this is before the, the whole hydrogen bomb. We kind of got ahead of ourselves there. But then he starts yeah. speaking out against that, and he gets kicked out. So it says, basically, that's what happens is he gets kind of back in, not clearance-wise, but kind of back in, like, doing this type of work. And then something else happens on the political scale, and he just says, opens his mouth about it, disagreeing yeah. with it, and then he kind of has to leave again. Happens a couple of times like that. Yeah. 
but he does settle in Princeton. That's kind of what he does. He uh, he gives speeches, uh, different speeches, and yeah. different. Well, he's talks. still a celebrity. He's still a celebrity. Yeah, he's still a celebrity. He doesn't really uh, publish much uh, with regards to physics after World War II. It seems like the height of his theoretical physics was really 1930s, before he was brought into Manhattan Project. Uh, he winds up because of chain smoking, right? Is diagnosed with throat cancer in 65. He has surgery, doesn't really go crazy well. Then he's got uh, unsuccessful radiation treatment, the chemotherapy in 66. Uh, eventually, he just falls into a coma in February 15th, 1967. He dies at his house in Princeton, New Jersey at the age of 62. You know, a lot of known people go to his uh, funeral. Leslie Groves is there, right? There's 600, yeah, there's all he left a big legacy. So when everyone says a person still his achievements left a legacy that changed the world. Whether you want to say good or bad, that's something that can be argued. But him leading the Manhattan Project, that changed the world. Like humanity now had the means to destroy itself. It also has a lot of other like nuclear power could do a lot of other things too, if used correctly. So it changed the world. That's basically what I'm trying to say here, right? Yeah. And there's no there's no going back. So I mean I guess that's pretty much it on Robert or rather J. Robert Oppenheimer. Yeah, I mean there's and, there's, a, there's a lot of other stuff, a lot more on Oppenheimer. You know, I'm sure the movie's going to be pretty good. Everyone's talking yeah, about I can't wait to see it. We should go see it together. Oh, wait, I know you're. I thought you wanted to see Barbie instead. I thought that was a big. Uh, I thought it, you know some theaters are actually playing it as a double feature. All right, really? Well, it's made by yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah I think that's that's an odd comp- like odd combo though. Like you get a double feature ticket to see Barbie and the Oppenheimer movie. Well, I'm was sorry. there ever nuclear physicist Barbie? I, I'm, I'm uh, probably. I Barbie, there's Barbie everything. Yeah, wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. It was like you know Manhattan Project Barbie. You know, oh man, anyway, guys, thank you so much for tuning in once more. We appreciate it. If you need to find us, you can find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com. We are there to answer any of your questions. Make sure you guys uh, click that subscribe or like button and make sure you guys follow us on all social media because we are there. And I guess that's it. We'll see you guys next week. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com.